Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I am your host, Alex Danzig. We're excited to announce that we are bringing the Cafe Bitcoin Conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Max Kaiser, Lynn Alden, Thomas Strolight, Corey Clipston, and many others from the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button to make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode, or you can join us live on Twitter Spaces, Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern, every morning and become part of the conversation yourself. Thank you again. We look forward to giving you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. Hey, Alex, yesterday you, you tweeted about um, something about the, the asymmetric nature of the wars that the U.S. has lost. And can you kind of expound on that a little bit? Because I, I didn't understand what you were talking about. Yeah, so asymmetric warfare is when you don't fight directly. So basically every war the United States has been involved in virtually since Vietnam for the most part, has been asymmetric. Um, okay, the probably the one exception is the one I was in. <laughs> um, aside from that, it's been almost all asymmetric warfare, which eventually eventually led to uh, no long term success. You know, you you could ha- you could call it. You know, we've had temporary successes in different theaters of conflict. But were those successes long-standing? I don't know. Were you, so were you in Iraq 1 or Iraq 2? I was in Desert Shield, Storm, Saber, whatever that is. I don't know. So do you mean that, Alex? In other words, like drones and, and further distance fighting? Is that what you mean by asymmetric then? Because oh, no, no. Um, okay, so asymmetric warfare is kind of like insurgent warfare, basically. You don't when – you, when you're a weaker – force you don't fight a stronger force head on you hide you you, you basically it's guerrilla warfare so think so that's fallujah. Yeah, I think, get it. Warfare. Think, yeah. think fallujah yeah yeah sort of the age of direct warfare for the most part i mean is mostly yeah. over i think you know i gotta take issue with that alex because you know we did we did uh our objective was to was to chop the head off of uh of uh, Osama bin Laden's network, and we've we've success. I believe we have pretty successfully done that. Um, yeah, but it's not a war. Well, okay. So then, I mean, we haven't really, we really haven't been in a war. Then, I mean, if you want to, if you want to, if you want to call do that, then what war have we been in besides the war on? So drugs? that okay. So taking out, you know, like a, a terrorist organization is. I don't know that you could really call that a war. Right. Like to me, a war is when you're on on some other nation's soil, um, like over a, a, a longer sort of period of time with, you know, objectives. Isn't that what we the were problem, doing in Iraq and Afghanistan from 2003 until. Yeah. So to me, those are more like wars. Yeah. I mean, they're undeclared, right? And I mean, here's the here's the weird part about that is is that like 
the U.S. is engaged in all kinds of military shenanigans that weren't actually declarations of war by definition. Because in order for the United States to go to war, uh, it has to be declared a war by Congress, which we haven't done. I can't remember the last time we fucking did that. Maybe it was Desert Storm. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know about that. I mean, I... I, I, I... I don't know, Alex. I think that the I think that the military objectives and the political objectives of the um, conflicts that we've been in have been separate things. And um, I, I want to say that the that the military has done a pretty damn good job achieving their objectives. Yeah, that's um, true. That's and fine. I also I also but I also would say that when when you said when you were talking about that asymmetric war, I was thinking of things like like the the uh, the Russians meddling in um, in our um, elections or and you know for that matter I mean we've been really successful in in cyber warfare when it comes to combating um, Iranian uh, um, uh, uranium production there's lots of things that we've been really successful at uh, and what we're not good at is is things that I think are in more in the political arena. That's, that's where we seem to suffer. It's not the, it's not what the military is doing. It seems to be what the, what the politicians are trying to achieve. That's just my opinion. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And then like, okay, so it brings in all these other kind of like, there's this concept called full spectrum warfare. Full spectrum warfare is everything. It's, it's uh, space, um, air. I mean, not just kinetic is either. It's also, um, cyber, financial, social engineering, all that kind of stuff. I would argue that the world has kind of been at war for a while now in terms of financial, cyber, social engineering. I mean, that's been going on. And it would make quite sense a bit. that it, it would make but, sense that that authoritarian regimes um, have the advantage there because they can be much more nimble in their ability to um, direct those kinds of attacks um, versus, you know, the Western democracies, which don't really see that as fair play currently, I think. Uh, I don't know about that. I, I think that we've engaged in lots of stuff. It doesn't mean you know about it. I mean... And then the other weird, really weird thing about this, so the one of the issues I take with this word, using the word war, I mean, it's basically been continual warfare. How about that? Like, to me, when you have a war, you actually have victory conditions that you're trying to achieve. So it gets very confusing for the military when you don't have clear objectives. And it's just, there have been these theaters where we go in and we don't, and the military is not given clear objectives. And that's a problem because now you got guys on the ground that are in harm's way. And it's not super clear what the job is. And then even worse, the job changes over time. Like I may, I may have this messed up, but it seems to me in, in Afghanistan, like the objective changed multiple times, which has got to be really fucking confusing for the troops. Right. So you've got all that stuff going on. And then as far as the multi-spectrum warfare thing, I feel like it's been continuous and nonstop. Right. How long has have sort of technology assets been kind of like either sold off to other countries or stolen outright through through espionage? Um, I mean, all this kind of stuff's been going on for a while. Tomer, good morning. 
Hey, <laughs> good morning. Yeah, I, I think I want to echo a lot of what you're saying and that, and maybe just broaden the perspective. When we don't have objectives, we end up in these situations of endless, um, purposeless activity. So, or, or worse, the perpetuation of the activity becomes the purpose of the activity. So like we, we see it outside of warfare. I'll bring it right back into warfare, but we see it. We, we used to cure diseases. Now we manage them, maintain them. And the purpose of the healthcare industry is to turn every human being into a perpetual care receiver um, rather than to cure them and get them out of the system. And it feels like the same thing has happened with with the field of warfare, as you describe it. It's like there's this endless perpetual grind without a victory condition. We don't know. Like World War II, complete and unconditional surrender. That's what was the goal. And so you could work towards something and you could make a decision on the basis of whether it would lead to that or not. But when you don't have a clear objective at all, you're just like, oh, we're engaged in war. And we, we win some pieces, we lose some pieces. If we feel we've had a stronger setback, we fight harder, but we're not fighting towards the end of the war. There's no end in sight. Yeah. Well, here, let me, let me interject to this one thought, and that is um, it, if there was some group of people that benefited from continuous warfare, not that 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 exists or anything but like if there were like wouldn't it make sense to have wars without clear objectives like you know <laughs> this is something that's always kind of ticked me off a little bit is this you know when they when they create these wars against things that you really can't win and there are no victory conditions the war on terror well what the fuck is that like can you is there ever a victory condition for that so you could use that slogan for perpetual war, for perpetual spinning up of, of the military industrial complex, complex for perpetual never ending taxation and spending. I mean, same thing's true for the war on poverty and the war on drugs and the war yeah. on pick, pick anything. None of these things have victory conditions. Right. And what I'd add, Alex, with a lot of these things, it's one thing to say, well, the war on terror, the terrorists are located somewhere and we're going to go and fight them. But what ends up happening is we all get um, drafted and and must pay service into the war. Like, take your shoes off, take your belt off, go through the body scanner, give me your bottle of water. This is just at the airport, and it's everyone pitching in there, you know, do your part. Don't bring up more than 100 milliliters of liquid in any single container on a plane. And a lot, a lot of this stuff just, it ends up being, it clearly doesn't protect us from terrorism it's not catching terrorists we're the ones who are affected by it and it's security and, theater well, all that yeah, nonsense and, like with the exactly, tsa so, you have to take your fucking belt off like okay expensive. i'm sorry to interrupt you about this but i've got to get this off my chest because i traveled recently down a bit block boom right i'm going through tsa and i think the whole taking your shoes off and your belt off and all this other kind of stuff is so fucking ridiculous it's just ridiculous and um it's forcing it's forcing people into a pattern of behavior of of 
compliance and subservience. And it's so, uh, this, okay, there's a gal and she's giving instructions to people. Okay, you know, you take your laptop out and your shoes and all that kind of, that kind of stuff. And she's like, you might want to take your belt off. And I'm like, is it, you know, before you go through the little scanning machine where you put your hands up in the air and the machine scans you. And um, I, she goes, you might want to take your belt off. And I look at her, I go, is that required? And she's like, no, it's not required, but it might set the machine off. I said, so we're worried about offending the machine. And she didn't say anything. She just kind of looked at me. So I was like, okay, whatever. I left my belt on and I went to the machine so I go, I go to enter the machine. The dude on the other side of the machine is like, do you have a belt? I'm like, yep. And he goes, well, it might set the machine off. And I'm like, okay, are we worried about setting the machine off? And he goes, well, if you set the machine off, then I have to pat down, give you a physical pat down, including your groin area. I'm like, so in other words, if I, if I set the machine off, I trigger the machine, the machine is now afraid of my belt. You get to touch my groin. Is that, is that what's going on here? And he kind of just looked at me like, eh, yeah. So I went back to the first lady and I said, when a, when a person asks if it's required, the proper response should probably be, no, it's not required. However, if you scare the machine, then the guy on the other side gets to touch your groin. That's what it should be. I was really pissed off, took my belt off, put it through the thing, you know. I was really irritated by that, though. Uh, I hope when you got back, someone you wanted to touched your groin. I didn't even get somebody <laughs> to touch my groin, but I just thought the whole thing was just. Uh. Yeah, uh, I can relate, Alex. Um, you know, all this traveling and all the stupid restrictions. I feel like I'm undressing and then redressing on the other side of the machine every time. The amount of crap they make you get rid of and put back in, and then you're holding up the line. It's all total security theater, as you said. But don't we all clearly see what's going on here? The people that control the money get to direct where it goes by telling society what's important. So this is war on terror and we need to fund it. And that money just flows through the military industrial complex right back into the coffers of the politicians, the corporate, uh, the big corporate oligarchs that run the food industrial complex and the medical industrial complex. It works the same way. They get all the right benefits. They kick it all back. It's a big cycle of money up at the top end. And we have to deal with the scraps what they leave us what they give us it's all because of the broken money and you know perpetual war is exactly how they keep the money flowing in their direction it's just pretty clear this is why we're here bitcoin fixes it exactly and and to add to that point surfer jim you know if if we are if we are tired and, and upset enough about any issue we have in this country, um, fortunately, the ability to um, have influence on that process. And I want to go back to last year. Was it last year? I think it was last year. Uh, whenever the, whenever the that uh, that bill was coming up before the the Senate um, that had the uh, the Bitcoin mining and the and the devs and all that stuff in it, and the Bitcoiners you know, uh, organized and attacked, well, not attacked, organized and tried to influence that process and did influence that process. And it, if, if, if a few, if a few Bitcoiners, and I, I'm assuming it was not a huge portion of the population, is calling their senators and asking them and making a to-do, and it, it actually stops legislation at, at the federal level in the Senate, 
why is it that we can't organize and get rid of things like the Patriot Act? And we should be able to, and we can. The problem is that that most people don't either have the time, have the brain capacity, or have the the will to do that. We as Bitcoiners have the will, have the capacity, and and have the um, uh, 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 the intelligence to be able to attack something that is meaningful to us. So, you know. We could get rid of these things if we wanted to. I don't know. Can we? It's going to be, there's, I think there's going to be this continual tension between what's the direction that Western nations are going right now. Um, and, you know, the pushback against it. But at the end of the day, um, I don't know. I keep thinking about Jeff Booth's speech from Bitblock Boom, where he said, "You can't change the system from inside the system. You have to change the system from outside the system." You don't. You don't think thousands of people calling their their senators on a daily basis about getting rid of the Patriot Act wouldn't get rid of the Patriot? I guarantee you it would. But it's not going to happen because it's basically I mean, it's basically a political non-starter. Because if I, if I organize something like that, I'm going to be viewed um, as anti-American. All right. So then it's not actually a practical solution then. You just said it yourself. No, it is a solution. It's just people have to be willing to um, – they have to be I willing practical. to – It's not a practical solution, meaning it's not something that's probably going to get done tomorrow. When people get pissed off enough at the TSA, it'll get done. I don't know. I don't know if I agree it's with that. It's been 20 years of the TSA. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Is that like people have been pissed off at the TSA forever. Nobody's done shit. <laughs> and what does that say about our society? Yeah, they show up and they're already taking their shoes off and their belt off before they even come into the into the thing. They're they're like getting programmed to do it already. They're not fighting it. They're getting prepared for it already. They've adopted it. And I don't believe that the government's going to give that shit up ever. And that's kind of why why I brought up the whole thing about the Bitcoin legislation that we attacked and we had definite influence on. I mean, if if enough people decide in this country decide to to do something, things get done. well. It may not be perfect, but things get done. It may not you may not you know you may not achieve all of your aims, but things get done when people in this country decide that they're going. Look at look at the Second Amendment. I mean, come on. There's all kinds of things that we value that we fight against that we have influence on from the inside in the process. What I think what I want to point out, which I think is true, in, is it's not, it's not that the majority rules, it's the vocal minority can change things. And I think that's the point that you're making, Peter, right? Like the majority of people will go along with whatever the government suggests, but a strong vocal minority that says this is where we're drawing the line 
can actually <laughs> successfully draw the line in certain places, right? And taking your belt off, just not enough people feel strongly enough to make an effort to draw the line on that. Aspects of the Patriot Act, not enough people have been able to muster enough continued support to draw the line on it. Um, but lots of other things. And we see these things happen quietly because it's not that the government says, okay, we agree these people are right. It's that the government stops enforcing and enacting certain things like, you know, vaccine passports are going away for the most part, not because those who endorse them agree that they're wrong. They're just quietly disengaging because it's too much trouble because these troublemakers are making too much noise about it. Do you know what I'm saying? Agree 100%, Tomer. Thank you for um, for uh, distilling that down. So it's really worthwhile. Like you don't have to you don't have to persuade the majority of everybody to cast a ballot for a politician who's articulated a law that protects the thing that you're after, right? Like everything is legal except for that which is illegal. So just get rid of the laws that prevent you from doing what you want to do in life. You don't need a law to tell you you can do something. And then do do the things that are justified and, and that you want to do that don't violate other people's freedoms. And we were talking yesterday about being sovereign and being a sovereign individual in the world. And, you know, this is part of the part of the 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 mental exercise that, you know, one has to go through that I'm going through um, to be able to 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 talk myself into it, because that's basically what I, what it comes down to is I just have to make a decision and then live with that decision. Hey, uh, Alex, I don't mean to derail whatever direction you were going to go in, but I saw some pretty creepy memes of uh, Joe Biden yesterday with a nice red background acting like a dictator and essentially calling out half the population of this country as extremists and enemies. And I think it ties right into what's been discussed here. The state hates us and they want to control us. And I just am blown away. They, the speechwriters let him say some of what he said. I'd love to hear other people's feedback on that if it's appropriate. Yeah, the whole Darth Biden thing. I was desperately trying to avoid talking about that today. <laughs> Sorry, bro. I just I thought it tied in. But you, you take it with whatever direction you want. Well, it does. It's just unfortunate that that's like the most interesting news item of the last 24 hours. It's lame as hell. Ugh. I want to throw up. I'm not left or right. Like, I'm against central banks and this central planner shit. I think that this, a lot of this left and right is meant to divide us and keep us away from the shell game that they're perpetuating in front of our faces. But at the same yeah. time, I saw that thing and I was like, who came up with that lighting scheme? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> they're just trying us now. I said on the on a no, that's for week. real. All that like, they're all just that. trying us in our faces. Yeah, man, it's designed to get a reaction. They they want an insurrection, man. They're looking for that shit. I would encourage you if you're listening to this, and they're they're fucking with you, and they're egging you on, and they're getting an emotional reaction out of you. That's what they want. Stay peaceful. I think, 
I think you're right, out. Alex. If they can in, incite an insurrection, they have justifications for cracking down on everybody and new rules, new 100%, laws, restrictions. 100%. Yeah, what would be better? What would be better for a regime that's about to lose power in November and then again in 2024 than to go into martial law? What would be better than that? Because you've got a bunch of domestic terrorists running around, right? What would be better than that for those guys? Do they really have a chance of going that far with this whole country? It seems pretty you extreme. Don't think it's a lot. So? I don't you know. Don't? They'll try, but can they do it? I, of course they'll try. They try every day. Okay, well, here's the problem. When when in history, when when politicians do stupid shit, sometimes it escalates way beyond what they imagined. And uh once that once that's out of the box, man, there's no putting that shit back in. So I think it's important. This is why I keep talking about Bitcoin is the peaceful path forward. You just got to exit the monopoly board, man. There's a bridge where you can go onto a completely different monopoly board. And um, who knows, man, at some point, I don't know what's going to happen. All I know is that it's, it's, it's crazy rhetoric it's crazy and i agree with ant it's designed to divide stay focused stay stay, stay on mission guys I, I, get all say, distracted. I was gonna say i agree with you alex you, you need to make yourself resilient to the things that are coming uh in our direction like uh shaking your rancher's hand and the people you know go to the go to the uh, farmer's market and figure out a way you can live off grid if you need to you know Whatever it might be, because when the shit hits the fan, there's only so much an individual can do. And sometimes it's better to just get out of the way so they don't see you. And maybe you can get past the freaking apocalypse that seems like it's coming. And, and hey, thank you, Alex, for for uh, t uh, mentioning, you know, Bitcoin and and because it's really like a warm blanket knowing that uh, I have that corn in in cold storage. It's unconfiscatable. It's permissionless. Um, it's it's censorship resistant, and it, it it really empowers me and enables my my sovereign journey to start. Hey, sir, for Jim, um, to your question about the government being able to push the, this country like as far like you were asking how far they can push it, like um, don't be surprised. Like from from my pers from my view and my um, my experience. In Venezuela, um, you can always see like bell curves everywhere, right? And it, it's the same with this kind of situations. Like, there's always the people at the top that you know, like, see this coming, and then the people like a few in the bottom that are aware, and they're telling everybody like, "Hey, this is going to happen." Like, we're like in Venezuela, that like people that knew like where Chavez was coming from, they kept saying like "Hey, this 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 is not good. We're we're falling down a slippery slope," and he started doing. All the things that I started to see that the the government has started doing here, like especially the Democrats, like they they started dividing people slowly and then pushing the narrative. And now we've got to the point where like, oh, MAGA is extremists, like they're they're not Americans. And Hugo Chavez did yeah, exactly. I'm gonna, I'm gonna the same stop thing. you. I'm gonna stop you right there. While everything you're saying is correct, what we need to not do on this show is turn this into a political show. Like we've oh, been talking about, about a that. lot of this kind of stuff. Well, it's, I mean, the show is supposed to be about Bitcoin. Now, well, yeah, Bitcoin is political, though, right? Like, so it's politics is very important. I feel like. Yeah, but you need to be careful, okay? 
I mean, we talk about the, and Tomer and I have talked about this a lot. You got to be careful. There's a difference with discussing politics and tyranny and freedom and all that other kind of stuff and moving into realms of partisanship. Okay. So I guess that's the a better way to say it is that we need to avoid getting too deep into partisanship discussions because, well, because <laughs> this is not like a, we got to keep it Bitcoin related, I guess is, is what I'm trying to say. Look, I'm all about freedom. And if it fucks with freedom, I'm not for it. I've already said that before. That's the lens. Go ahead, Tomer. Yeah, there's a piece that I have in my head that I have to write. Uh, I've got maybe some notes on it, but it really is just this. There's all these false alternatives, false dichotomies that we've grown up under because we didn't see the third option, right? So when you think you can toss a coin and you can only get heads or tails, and you're not aware, well, maybe it can land on its side or you can avoid co tossing the coin altogether or you can toss two coins and create more possibilities, you're captured in this false alternative which you think is one thing or the other. And we have it told to us with capitalism versus socialism, Democrats versus Republicans, you know, America versus Russia. There's just endless of these false alternatives that we're given. And in most of these cases, they're both bad alternatives, right? We're trying to choose the lesser evil between two parties that are not serving uh, our interests, two systems of econom economic um, activity that everyone who is a proponent of it says, say, has never, despite hundreds of years of attempts, existed in their true form. And so we need to find alternatives. And I think this is where Bitcoin really comes in. And I, for those who were here on Wednesday, Pete Rizzo talked about the philosophy of Bitcoin maximalism, which is different than just being a Bitcoiner. It's just philosophy, as he defines it, of putting Bitcoin ahead of, of ahead of everything else. And I'm not saying everybody should or shouldn't be um, th that as opposed to just a Bitcoiner, where you may not hold every one of these principles near and dear. But this is an alternative to I'm voting so that the people who share my ideas can impose them on the people who don't share my ideas, right? Or I'm preaching for a system that I agree has never worked in practice anywhere else. Bitcoin is working in practice. It's still in its early years, but there aren't people, as there are people who say this, that, that wasn't real socialism, you know, Venezuela is not real socialism as the apologist and the apologists for capitalism say America is not real capitalism. And so like, well, where in the world can we look and see real socialism, real capitalism? And nobody says it, but you don't have Bitcoiners saying this isn't real Bitcoin. Like, and I think this is what makes the system so interesting. Like it's something that's working in practice. It's still early. We don't know for certain that it's going to work. We, I, I think anyone who's pitching you the story that Bitcoin leads to utopia is probably mistaken, but it, what it leads to is freedom of freedom of choice to live in peace with others, whether they share your exact view or in philosophy or not. And that's what is, I feel is so badly needed today. Well, um, Alex, I'm I'm sorry about making the, the 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 point that I was trying to make political, but all I wanted to say to serve for Jim's point was that like. There's always people in the middle that 
they always doubt that they can push us like society into like total like a totalitarian regime like there's always the majority is going to be like unaware like kind of like frogs in a pot um like that trope but I i've just experienced it i've lived through it and i lived through it like growing up i grew up through like seeing this whole process and and i don't i don't know if there's a lot of people here that can like share that experience you know that i i where, saw where like, are the, you from andres i'm from venezuela all right so how old are you i'm 32 all right so you you basically witnessed this whole thing go down in steps in venezuela the whole thing, the whole thing. And I'm also like, I, I grew up, I'm, I'm from Barinas, which is like the state where Hugo Chavez is from. So I, I knew some of his nephews because of like my friends, it's a very small town. And, and so like, I was pretty close to the whole thing. I, I, even, I even was close to Chavez like a couple of times while in my youth, while I was there growing up, because he would come visit his family and like my, you know, like by random chance, like I would see him like, he would like, like a couple of feet away from me. Um, but I never really liked the guy anyway. So yeah, man, I, I, I experienced the whole thing and, and I keep telling my wife and my relatives here that the, my, like the white side of my family, cause my wife, my wife is American, um, from Kansas city. So I keep telling them like, Hey, like all the stuff I'm seeing that is happening now in the U S like, I have seen this before. Like it feels the same, this, like the same place. All the same shit that they did in Venezuela when, when it yeah. went down there. Yeah, and the thing about Venezuela is that, like, in this Latin American countries, it's so easy to, like, corrupt politicians and corrupt the military. It's super easy because people, people, you know, it's poor countries and, like, well, quote-unquote, but Venezuela was really, has always been, like, wealthy when it comes to oil. You know, it's a very rich um, country and natural resources. So it's always been a super crony, like, type democracy, and that's kind of what led yeah. Hugo Chavez into power. That, that, and, the, and, the, the, and, and basically the, the whole arresting of the opposition thing, that yeah. as soon as that kind of, arresting of the political opposition, as soon as that kind of stuff yep. starts, man, that's that's a slippery slope. Yeah, and it started with like the TV, like uh, there was a huge uh, TV network that was like established media, and Hugo Chavez just like put him out because he was say he said like, "Oh, you guys are spreading misinformation. You guys are like talking lies and all this stuff." Like same thing that's happening here, and it's just like this is the playbook of of the like you're not allowed. You're not allowed to think differently, or they declare exactly. you an enemy of the state, kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah, man, that, that was the point I was trying to make, Surfer Jim. Yeah, like, man, you'd be surprised how easily we can slip into into that. It's very dangerous. Yeah, well, we have a country full of way more guns than probably Venezuela, so there's going to be a different dynamic. I just, you know, I didn't yeah. mean to derail, derail the thing, but uh, I, I feel like there would be mm. a different outcome here, potentially. Maybe, but that doesn't mean these people aren't crazy enough to try it anyway. That's That's the part that you need. Oh, I've always yeah. agreed to that. Absolutely, they're going to try. They're already trying, and you know we're going to find out, aren't we? <laughs> but don't you guys think that you know, as we kind of look at like traditional media sources, I think a lot more people are starting to kind of to Ant's point see the fear-based propaganda that's being projected onto us, creating more of the political divide. But on the upside of things, we're seeing a lot more people flow into like Twitter Spaces and go to alternative media outlets to try to get more information and just like over the past couple of years we've seen a significant increase of people just having conversations like this um and, and they're able to kind of yeah. cast a lot of that stuff yeah but but how does that matter okay so it's kind of like one of the 
one of the psychological kind of prepping the ground for this kind of stuff is, and this comes right out of some communist manifesto playbook. I don't remember which one. I just remember reading it at some point, the bullets anyway. And one of them is you got to make, make everybody think they're alone. Like you're the only one that thinks the way you do. That's like part of it. Right. So when I hear people say, aren't more people waking up? Yes. More people are waking up, but is it more people are waking up or more or people Everybody sees it. It's just people are afraid to talk about it. I think I'm starting to suspect it's more the second one. Like that whole thing about you're in the minority, you're the, you're the extremist, right? You're the only one who thinks this way. No, actually, I think the vast, vast majority of people think that way. A lot of people are afraid to say that. And because people are afraid to say it, it seems like the psycho side is the majority. They're really not. I don't know if I'm saying, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but this is kind of what I'm thinking lately. Well, I just, I'll weigh in real, I, I certainly agree with what Ant said a few minutes ago with regards to, you know, the political parties intentionally or not divide more than they do anything else. And so I've certainly changed my perspective on how I want to quote unquote associate or align myself and Bitcoin has kind of woken me up to that, which is kind of strange in one sense. Right. But it has. I think, I think many people, Alex, to your point, aren't a hundred percent sure what they think. Like they'll wake up and they're like, yeah, you know, this is this, a is right. And I'm, I'm trying to keep it apolitical. So they'll say, you know, a is right. But then they'll watch the news and the news is going to be a stream of, well, you know, some people who believe a or, doing bad things and here's clearly where they told a lie about something and you know and and there's a lot of political pressure against the people who believe a so maybe keep your mouth shut about uh thinking about a so much and so a lot of people end up in a very uncertain state uh a certain uncertain condition who's the good guys who are the bad guys what do i really know anyways i should just be doing what i'm doing and and back to what we were saying before like if you push hard enough you get you get the vocal minority that pushes back hard enough where you say, well, I don't think, I don't think now is the time to go. But when, when a guy like um, Andrew, Andrus talks about when you actually have politicians that go all the way, right, they go for complete totalitarianism and they're ready to murder people in the streets to do it. Um, that's a real moment of truth. That's a real moment of truth for the people of a country, because if you're, because they'll, of course, be saying it's the other, we're just going after the bad guys. We're trying to create utopia. You know, it's, this is a necessary evil that we've got to do here. But it's not really evil because the people we're persecuting and locking up are bad people. That's when that's when it's the moment of truth. And if you don't stand up at that point in time, then then you end up with the Soviet Union. Then you end up with Cuba. Then you end up with our Venezuela and things like that. But it is, um, it's when the violence begins. Yeah. Right. What is, when, yeah, it's a very sobering conversation. I'm sorry for, you know, if you, if you came in here and you're looking for happy thoughts today, I apologize. That's not what we're all about this morning, apparently. <laughs> uh, politics. <laughs> There's nothing happy about that, man. It's just, it's always complicated. Hey, Dr. Jeff, good morning. Tell us something happy. <laughs> no pressure. Hey, morning, guys. 
uh, man, really, uh, happy. Um, it's Labor Day week. <laughs> so I think people get a day off on Monday, so that'll be good for people. That's a happy thought. Get outside a little bit, stop watching the charts, stop watching uh, what the politicians say, stop watching the cable news channels and, uh, go outside. So that, that'll be happy. That'll make you feel good. Well said. Go touch some grass. Isn't that what Sam Callahan says? Call your mom. Touch some grass, get some sun, right? Take your shoes off, walk, walk barefoot. <laughs> oh, I'll jump in with, you know, if we want to change subjects, I don't, I don't have to, but if we want to uh, a little bit, another happiness could be that, you know, the markets are interpreting the data that just came out. Um, this is kind of like bad news is good news sort of thing in, in the quirky world we live in right now. So the jobs data came out. I don't know if you guys already talked about it, but basically, um, no, not yet. okay. So the trend is basically that less new jobs are being added and the unemployment rate unexpectedly crept up from 3.5% to 3.7%. Um, you wouldn't normally cheer a, a higher unemployment rate, but of course this is what the fed is trying to do, destroy demand. They're trying to put people out of work. Um, so that they don't have money, so they can't afford things, so that it drives the price of goods down. Um, that's how they're. That's their plan to help control inflation, uh, which is really backwards uh, if you think about it. It's like a socialist way to solve a problem. I can't stand it, uh, but that's what they're doing. So the market is interpreting that as sort of good news that unemployment rate is coming up a little bit. Um, that means inflation might not uh, continue to spiral out of control. Um, so the markets are celebrating today. So there's some good news for you. That's such a Thanks, weird Jeff. dynamic. Thanks, you know, Jeff. I, I kind of wanted to do- jump in because I think I've made, we, we, t- we tend to talk about macroeconomics a lot. And I keep jumping in every now and then with some utterance about microeconomics, this crazy thing that everyone seems to have forgotten. And just to sound a little old, like I I did two business degrees, one of them in finance and investing, and we very we spent very little time talking about macroeconomics, which is what everyone talks about now. Because as a, as an old like you used to study the fundamentals of an individual company and say, it, does this look overpriced or underpriced? And I'll invest in this individual company. But macroeconomic investing is like what's what's happening, and, and macroeconomics isn't this um, let's say fair study. It's how does the government interfere in the economy to distort and manipulate things so that its goals, its stated goals are achieved. And Jeff, you just did a really good job there showing how detached they can become from the real world and pursuing, we want to pursue lower inflation and we're very happy to pay the price of people being unemployed and unable to afford food because that real world thing doesn't matter to us. It's this number on a piece of paper that matters to us. But What's happened is is this intervention into the economy bought through macroeconomic forces, through government manipulation of the money supply, now overwhelms fundamentals. And it's not about investing in individual companies because their fundamentals are sound. It's about getting in and out of the market on the basis of what you think the reaction of the meddler is going to be. Like, and this is your whole point, Jeff, right? Like the markets are reacting positively because there's terrible fundamental news. Well, why would they react positively? Because they're denominated in dollars, which are a gamed currency that the macroeconomic forces are going to pump up by printing more money or not tightening the supply, artificially tightening the supply of it as much. And this is 
this form of economic totalitarianism that we live under, where investing has nothing to do with economic value creation. In fact, the markets go down when when there's good economic data and they go up when there's bad economic data because we think the meddler is going to turn the dial more in the opposite direction. It's really messed up. Yeah, to your point, great, a lot of great points, Tomer. I'm really looking forward to the day, and I know most of us here are, uh, where the the livelihoods of regular people aren't decided by a group of academics sitting in a room somewhere who are completely aloof uh, to what's going on in the rest of the world. Uh, it's just uh, it's just crazy to have a monetary policy that can just sort of be decided on whims and based on emotions and based on geopolitics and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, I'm very much looking forward to the day where we're on a Bitcoin standard and we don't even think about monetary policy anymore because it's just pre-programmed. Oh, I can't come soon enough, but we have to be patient because we are still so early. Uh, shout out to Brady Swenson. Oh, that's not Brady Swenson. That's Craig Wright. But maybe it's Craig Wright. Oh, it's Brady Swenson. It's <laughs> his That's Twitter funny. handle says Craig Wright is a fraud. I'm inviting you up if you want to come up. <laughs> that one took me a sec. <laughs> I'm exhausted. Why? I was involved with a stack join war last night, which was super fun, um, and, but it was exhausting. And I ended up fighting five guys because I forked the stack, the stack join um, side chain and then proceeded to stack uh, probably about 10 times my normal DCA in, because my competitive self took over. And, which is a good thing. It's it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. I just got more sats out of it. But it was an exhausting process trying to um, shit post with five other guys and and beat them. And I eventually won, which you know. So thank you very much, my ego. Um, and then um, I <laughs> congrats, woke up, Peter. And then I woke up this morning and somebody had dropped a, a forty nine thousand uh, dollar stack. Uh, um, uh, somebody had mined a forty nine thousand uh, dollar block of uh, of stacks on the stack chain, so I'm 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 like literally exhausted. Wow, things are getting serious over there. Wrecked. Oh, and I broke Twitter in the process because so the kind of the way it works is other people can see your your replies, and so there's this there's this. Um, um, there's this, uh, continuous, um, series of, of, of screenshot replies. So you kind of scroll through them and I was firing these things off so fast and they looked exactly the same to Twitter. And so what was happening was, is I was seeing this continuous chain. Everybody else was seeing that the tweet was not, um, displayed because Twitter decided that my tweets were spam. And so that added to the confusion of what was going on. So this other chain, they were continuing to try to stack and they were laughing at me because they couldn't see what I was doing. I eventually had to take a video 
um, of my of my uh, continuous uh, blocks to prove through proof of work to prove that I had actually um, stacked what I said that I had stacked. But you know, it's just, this is the kind of chaos that goes on over in Stack Chain, and then there's you know 10 million notifications going on at the same time, and it's just a really fun way to. Um, stack sats in a bear market. And matter of fact, most people that get in there, because we have uh, we have a spaces, most people that get in there that are new are just like, oh my god, I I didn't realize that it's it's kind of like the reaction that you guys get when you when you went to Bitbox Loom um, and you get to meet people in person. It's kind of that kind of reaction to um, how fun it is to stack sats on the on the uh, stack chain. Awesome. Then that is your morning find the tip update from peter <laughs> peter may be lying to us he may be trying to advance his fork of the stack chain at the exp- oh no it's, it's it's it was a side chain tomer and that that has been resolved um the 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 fun part about it was i broke twitter in the process well i have no way of running my own stack chain node so I have to. I, I can't try. I can't verify. That's not true, Tom, Tomer. You can jump into the stack chain and you can become a validator. You can become a node. There's nodes in there. It, it, I'm telling you, this thing mimics the Bitcoin protocol. It's it's pretty crazy. Now let's hit some announcements real quick, and we'll keep rolling. Good morning, Brady. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to another day here at the dawn of the Bitcoin Renaissance. All right, you are listening to Cafe Bitcoin. We do talk about Bitcoin. We do it every day, Monday through Friday. I don't think we're doing it on Monday. Are we doing a show on Monday? Jacob? I think that will be our first day off. Yeah, I think we're not going to be here Monday. But All next right. week will be the biggest and best week in Cafe Bitcoin. We have really fun lineup. But yeah, Monday. Talk we'll- about it. Tell the peoples, man. All Tell right, them. all right. We might as well start talking about it. All right. Well, Tuesday we have Bitcoin Day, who's bringing a ton of guests from his Tennessee uh, day. I think it's next Saturday, but uh, Breed Love's going to be joining us with him, and uh, just to name a few. So that's going to be really exciting. Wednesday we have Hotep Jesus coming back as the featured guest. So we're going to be talking a lot about what he was on about uh, last couple weeks. And then uh, Thursday we're wrapping it up with the biggest episode with uh, Lawrence Leppard, Dr. Jeff. James Lavish and Greg Foss, uh, still a working title, but they're all going to come in and give their macro update. And then Friday is Swan Private Macro Friday, so really excited about next week. Did you Heck say that yeah. there's no Bitcoin cafe cafe Bitcoin on Monday? Is that what I heard? Yeah, no, no ah! cafe Bitcoin. <laughs> Being goat inbound. How dare you take a day off, Alex? I know it's horrible. <laughs> but isn't that an amazing lineup for next week? That's going to be fantastic. So we've got uh, Jeff Ross, as he mentioned, Jeff Ross, Greg Foss, James Lavis, Lawrence Lepard. Um, and we're going to do this as a regular thing, probably once a month. Brady, what do you think? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to fork it off and do. What was that? He's in the Matrix. Alex, I had the pleasure of meeting Lawrence Lepard as he was checking out the hotel at Bitblock Boom. Super nice guy. Uh, sounds like a great idea what you guys are putting together. Yeah. 
pretty excited about that. So if if uh, we haven't really decided on the name of that series yet, we're kind of batting around some ideas. So if you uh, you know you're a regular listener and you have some thoughts, we're open to thoughts. Doesn't mean we're going to choose your 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 name for the series, but I mean we're looking for for input right now. Okay, other announcements. Well, Alex, why don't you say some mm-hmm. of the names that you were bandying about so they get so people get the idea of what it is you're you're looking for? Uh, some of the names that we were bandying bandying about um, macro strategy in uh, in homage to to sailor with with micro strategy. That's one of the ones that came up. Um, what else we got? Give me a second. Boomers, boomers for Bitcoin, or Bitcoin for boomers, or whatever that was. That was, there was that boomer one thread, and then there was um, there was a couple other ones that we were talking about. Yeah, lots of boomer and, related ones. I don't know if I, I like those. I, and my thing with the Bitcoin boomer, if we do that, we gotta have the OG boomer in there with uh, Gary Leland. He is the Bitcoin boomer, so that's my. I love Gary, but <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So uh, other ones are like. The fiat minimalists, the untouchables, the anti-federalists, the gray champions. Uh, <laughs> Lawrence Lepard chooses violence. I don't know. <laughs> no, that was just a response. Lavish. What else? Uh, oh, this one was from Corey. The acronym UMAD, U-M-A-D, which stands for your models all destroyed. All your models. Well, I don't know. Something like that. About uh, four men and and a Satoshi. Mm. <laughs> and by the way, since you guys aren't doing a show on Monday, I think I might just fork off and do Cafe Bitcoin Cash. Uh, so watch out for a space for my handle. Thank you. We, we knew we knew somebody was going to do. We knew somebody was going to do it. You, you cannot have a no Bitcoin morning on Monday just because it's Labor Day. That's ridiculous. Hey, come on. You're retired, man. It's a little bit different. Every day is Saturday. Plebs are ornery today. Uh, let's finish up these announcements. Um, as I said, you're listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Good morning and welcome. If you didn't know, we talk about Bitcoin every single day, Monday through Friday. Start at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern. Roll for two hours we do it live on Twitter Spaces. You're welcome to join us there. Um, and if you can't catch a live show, we do do it as a podcast as well. These are recorded. goes up on Fountain, Spotify, Apple, everywhere that you get your pods. If you want the really juicy ones, look for the ones with the, with the COVID-19 notifications. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, Pacific Bitcoin Conference is coming up in November 10th and 11th in Santa Monica, California. That is going to be a great time, and I hope to see you there. Uh, it's going to be pretty much big. It's a Bitcoiner conference, guys. This is all the Bitcoiners. I don't expect to see a lot of shitcoiners around. I mean, they'll probably be there, but they're not going to be sponsoring and they're not going to be speaking. So everyone's welcome. And I do hope everybody comes. But uh, yeah, it's going to be a great chance to get some pure signal. I'm super looking forward to that. Promo code CAFE, all caps, for 30% off at PacificBitcoin.com. Don't miss it. That's all I got for announcements.
Did you buy any uh, non or KYC free Bitcoin while you were at anybody while they were at Bitbuck Boom? I did not. I'm always worried that it's it's going to be like uh, some dude from Treasury who's a spook. <laughs> it's going to arrest. Yeah, you never know, right? <laughs> Was that you were asking about KYC free Bitcoin? It was kind of yeah. a joke, but you know, there's this Azteca well, app. Yeah, the one, yeah. So exactly, and I was able to um, secure myself some KYC free Bitcoin. So yeah, it was being done. What's the yeah, premium like, on that? It's like twenty four thousand instead of twenty twenty something like that. I mean, if you do um, if you do peer to peer Bitcoin transactions, doesn't that create non KYC Bitcoin? Not necessarily, because if the Bitcoin is is KYC'd and I send it to you peer to peer, it's easy to trace on the blockchain that it came from Swan to me to you. So you've got to yeah, you've got to go with like a Bitcoin ATM or mine Bitcoin or this Azteco service. There's a Paynim, maybe yeah, right? a BitRamp, which is sort of a a U UX layer, I guess, on top of Azteco. There's a bunch of people, Bitcoiners, running around at meetups, and there'll be plenty at uh, Pacific Bitcoin as well. And you just pay them with whatever, like Cash App or Venmo or something, and they give you a little receipt with QR code, fire up Moon Wallet or whatever, scan it, there's your sats. Uh, so it's pretty good. Uh, but those guys aren't carrying around a whole lot. Like They're not capable of you know, selling you ten, like thousands or tens of thousands of dollars worth. So I just bought like 50 bucks, but it's pretty cool. And hopefully they'll uh, increase liquidity over time so you can make bigger purchases. Correction. Good morning, guys. Peer-to-peer um, <laughs> -peer is KYC free. Because while they may have your information on Swan, you sending Bitcoin on-chain direct to me, nobody has my ID. Nobody knows who I am. And being that there is no identity on chain, that is a KYC-free Bitcoin acquisition for me. So if you go to a conference or a meetup or meet anyone else, whether or not they are a spook, if you're doing an on-chain transaction directly from another individual to you, they don't have your name or any other information, that's KYC-free, people. So peer-to-peer -peer transactions on-chain, very cool. Yeah, yes. I, guess, I guess that's yes. true. Yes. If I, that is true, that's true. But if you, if I am KYC'd and I send you some Bitcoin, it is a lot easier for law enforcement to figure out who you are because they're just one. Hop, no, I'm one it's hop away, not. Right? I'm an anonymous address on chain. I could be anywhere in the world. But they could find out in other ways that maybe we're connected, right? I don't know. I guess it, I don't know how. I haven't thought how? This through, it's literally but. just an it's literally just another random address on chain. And because there's no identity on chain, even though there's an identity attached with that original source of that UTXO, yeah. um, once you transfer to me, a new UTXO is created and, and it's going to another random address on chain. They don't know whoever they are. They don't know if that's another wallet you control or a wallet somebody else controls. They don't know who okay. that is. So and then so, why go through the trouble of coin joining? That's a great question. And that's why I don't just jump into coin joining. And I certainly do not 
encourage anyone to take this approach of you've got to coin join all your KYC Bitcoin. It's ridiculous. Um, There's a lot of ways that um, you can basically move Bitcoin that makes it very difficult for anyone with any certainty to know who it is, especially when it's actually changing hands. Yeah. So receiving it from someone else is just fine. Now, if you turn right around and take that Bitcoin and, um, you know, spend it somewhere where your identity has to be like put with that payment, then there's KYC again. But, you know, once, once it's transferred to you peer to peer on chain, um, until, unless you do something that ties your identity to that, that's, that's identity free Bitcoin for you, not for the person who sent it to you. Right, sure. and that's and that's that's about coin control too, because you want to put it into an address that does not have it's not associated with KYC Bitcoin that you have already um, you know uh, gotten off an exchange or whatever. Right. Cool. Thanks, guys. Maybe I could jump in and offer my two cents. Another opinion, although I'm very much aligned with TC here. I think if you are holding your Bitcoin to spend as Bitcoin, you don't really have to be very worried about. Um, about KYC because you can send it censorship resistantly, permissionlessly to whoever wants to receive it. Um, And if they're not running um, one of these uh, chain analytics tools, you've both basically agreed to deal pseudonymously with with one another. If you're using the Lightning Network, nobody can see where um, where your transaction's originating from and who it's actually going to, especially if it's if it's doing a couple of hops. So there's a lot of fungibility and permissibility within the Bitcoin network. And there's a lot of people who have a lot of ideas. And I, like, I don't, I don't want to strongly disagree with people because in almost every circumstance and under some nuance, one version of, of these statements is true. Now, if, like if you're looking to convert a lot of Bitcoin back into U.S. dollars, you're going back through the financial system and everything there has KYC filters. And so coins that have been painted in the past and haven't moved in a long time may be subject to, to filters. But if you're investing in Bitcoin for the long term and you plan on spending Bitcoin, as that Morpheus and Neo uh, meme suggests, you don't, have to, you don't have to be too worried. I've never, <laughs> I've never had any problem spending any Bitcoin with anybody because I interact with other human beings, not with three-letter agencies at the government and nobody like nobody's running chain analysis on you it's it, it it's a great way to think of it you know if you want a little metaphor it i mean this is almost like the peer-to-peer electronic cash that, that satoshi wrote about in the white paper if you go withdraw you know 500 dollars bills from your bank you walk out of the bank the bank knows they gave you 500 dollars bills but then if you go to a cafe somewhere and meet up with Tomer and hand him those $500 bills, who knows that that occurred. And until he goes to a bank and deposits it, it's not known. And so as you're acting, transacting on chain with other individuals, it's essentially sort of like cash. It's just a a peer to peer transaction. There's no permission and there's certainly no identity information whatsoever on chain. So it's, it's one of those things like people should really, think about like not selling their Bitcoin sometime in the future. It's about spending and using your Bitcoin and sending it to other individuals and transacting with it. All right. Quick housekeeping thing. And then we're going to go with Brady. Uh, We're going to be rearranging the stage a little bit in prep for Swan private macro Friday. 
I see we've got John Har down in the audience. Uh, morning, John. We've got Worth down in the audience. I'm going to throw you an invite too. I know that many times you're busy and can't talk, but on the macro side of things, it's always good to have you up here to get your thoughts if you are available. Go ahead, Brady. Okay, so follow-up. The Bitfinex hackers, right? The richest rapper in the world at that time. <laughs> and um can't remember their names right now, but I definitely remember those TikTok videos. They um, <laughs> oh, were, they, were <laughs> they were traced through, I don't know how many hops. I, I saw a chart that like the FBI, whoever put out, um, into Monero, out of Monero, into Lightning, out of Lightning, all kinds of like, you know, payments forwarding to other addresses, et cetera, et cetera. How did that, how did they track that down? If but they didn't spend their, or like, so Brady, what I'm saying is if all of you're doing is spending Bitcoin to other people who are receiving Bitcoin, not going from Bitcoin through the financial system in, in like, as soon as you go into Monero, you're back, in, you're, you've come back into the financial system. As soon as you try to sell it for US dollars, you've come back into the financial system. So, well, my point I, is, how, how do they know who, like, who was holding that Bitcoin if they, like, went through all these they were using exchanges that they steps. had to register on, right? Like, if, if you certainly, if you're switching from one coin to another, yeah. an, a connection has to be made, and it's, it's made at the exchange level, presuming that you're using an exchange. And I, I think this is actually a super important point for all the people who are seeking privacy through Monero. If this is true, I, I haven't followed the Bitfin, Bitfinex hacker story fully so I, I i don't know but like if there are, are there are very few exchanges that deal in monero if they're compromised all the attempts that you're getting that you're attempting to get to privacy by trading into monero may may not maybe for not right and and listen these people committed a huge a huge theft and yeah. so there was a tremendous amount of focus on trying to track them down over the course of years. And they did some pretty stupid things. Like, I don't remember the story all that well, but they, they did some pretty stupid things um, to, to make themselves discoverable. So yeah. all, all I'm trying to say is, depending on how you're using your Bitcoin, like, it, you know, if, I, if you want me to send you 50,000 Satoshis through the Lightning Network because you've got a node somewhere or a wallet and I've got a node somewhere. It's not really clear to people who that a transaction even took place, right? Like <laughs> there's some onion routed thing. So one person knows that $50,000, 50,000 sets ended up with you. One person knows that 50,000 that was in one channel with me, or they don't even know that it ended up with you. They know that it routed through to you. Right, and they know that fifty thousand dollars originated at some point for me, but they don't know that that was the very origin of the transaction. So there's still a lot of privacy in this system. And if you give me a Bitcoin address, I can send Bitcoin to you. You may be worried about its uh, what's the word I'm looking for provenance, but if but if then uh, you know one of these other people on stage here asks you to send them the coins, they'll accept those coins without without doing this. So it's only when you're going through, right? The, the Bitcoin system is still censorship resistance. It's only when you're trying to come back out of the Bitcoin system that you're re-entering yeah. and re-emerging into the system that's I surveilled guess, and scrutinized. Uh, I guess my point is like they had information about these coins being taken from, Bit, from Bitfinex and where, where they went, what address they went to. 
right? They couldn't find these people for a long time. And you're right. They found them when they, you know, ended up trying to convert into dollars. Um, but they still had to follow those coins for, you know, through years of transactions. There were many, many transactions those coins moved through to get to um, the point where they were put back on an exchange. Anyway, my point is I, I haven't, I, I'm not a privacy expert, um, but, I, you know, Bitcoin is not as private as cash, that's for certain, uh, because there is a trail everywhere and there is KYCs, you know, KYC Bitcoin all over the place. So there's points where law enforcement can jump in. And we've seen law enforcement catch people trying to commit crimes with Bitcoin over and over again. So, I mean, we just, I don't want to leave the impression that Bitcoin is, you know, really private uh, on chain. Yeah, that's a fair point. Uh, uh, curious, Brady. Um, do you happen to know, did they do any coin joining or world pooling or anything like that in the, in the process? Or... I, I don't know, actually. I just remember seeing this chart of them, like the FBI, I can't remember who it was, what agency, but some three-letter agency followed these coins that were stolen from Bitfinex, put into a bunch of addresses, and then were able to follow the Bitcoin from those addresses through tons of steps to this exchange where they KYC'd and then eventually caught them. So, yeah. Interesting. Okay, cool. Well, we are now in the second hour of the show. Um, you're listening to Cafe Bitcoin. We're going to be doing um, Swan Private Macro Friday. This is something that we do every Friday. We bring in the Swan Private guys and some of the research team uh, from Swan, and we just talk about what's going on. We also have special guests uh, sometimes, like Dr. Jeff, who hang out with us. Um, I know Worth's down there. He's doing. He just messaged me. He's doing some work, so can't come up just yet. He might come up a little later. But. Um, yeah, and talk about everything macro. So I am going to um, introduce Sam Callahan, who is one of our researchers, Dr. Callahan, one of the smartest guys I know. Lots of great research, writes great papers. Good morning, Sam. Welcome. And um, we've also got Stephen Luca, who's the head of Swan Private, also another very smart individual who's continually surprises me by his his he has these really out of the box kind of thoughts that he that he occasionally like hits us with either on twitter or you know even in the team slack and i'm continually surprised by the breadth of um things that the man is interested in he's a he's a pretty prolific prolific reader uh so looking forward to that and then we've got john har who uh recently joined swan from goldman sachs 13 year veteran of goldman doing fixed income, m managing stupid amounts of money for institutions who's now part of the SWAN team. So good morning and welcome, guys. Thank you, Alex. Great to be here again. I've been, I missed this last week, you know? You guys had that uh, that important, uh, I think it was the BitBlock Bloom stream, but uh, I missed this. Yeah, we, we diverted, we diverted SWAN Private Macro Friday. Uh, to help with the HODL knot um, telethon and uh, raising money to help with the HODL knot defense fund. So yeah, it's, it was a worthy cause. I, I guess that's fair enough. I think that is a worthy cause, but I'm still salty. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> All right, let's go. John Har. good morning. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, everyone. Pump for a, a macro Friday, especially after the, the off week. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm pumped to get into it. 
Um, I have at least one thing I uh, could bring up, but I will defer to Steven and Sam to see if they had anything that they wanted to raise first. No, go ahead, unless, unless Sam's got something top of mind. All right, so what I was thinking we could bring up, because um, I think it's just kind of a good summary of uh, a lot of the macro themes going on in the world right now, um, and we can get people's thoughts on it, and I'm sure it'll lead into other conversations. Um, but it's, it's uh, the latest Zoltan Pozar piece, which came out last week. Um, I'm sure people are familiar with that name, but for those who are not, um, he uh, works at Credit Suisse. Uh, he writes um, macro pieces every so often. Uh, he calls them dispatches. And it's some pretty interesting thoughts in there. And he's one of these people that has a, a good understanding of the monetary system, um, as well as a lot of geopolitical uh, and macro events that are happening out there. So I wanted to highlight um, something he said in that dispatch piece. And his view in a nutshell is that there's an economic war happening between West and East. Or, you know, that's not necessarily his view. That, that's more just objectively happening. Um, and the East is broadly defined as, as China and Russia and the West being uh, broadly U.S. and Europe. And I'll just quote him on this part. He said, to ensure that the West wins the economic war, to overcome the risks posed by, and then he lists three things that are kind of his, uh, his pithy um, statements that he's come up with, which is one, are commodities your problem? Chips, meaning semiconductors, from our backyard, your problem, and our straits, your problem. Straits meaning like naval waterways. Um, so he's basically saying the, to overcome the risk posed by all those things, the West will have to pour trillions into four types of projects starting yesterday. And um, one is rearm, which he says is to defend the world order. Number two is reshore to get around blockades uh, and make supply chains effectively more resilient. Number three, he calls restock and invest in commodities. So this is to deal with the uh, reality that many countries are facing of upcoming food and energy shortages if, if they're not already facing that. And then number four is rewire the grid for the energy transition to be less dependent on fossil fuels. And regardless of what anyone's views are on that, that has been a big priority for most uh, Western developed countries, even before the Russia-Ukraine conflict and even before COVID. And most politicians do seem to just be doubling down on that as an initiative. So um, he lists out all these things that, that he thinks, like he said, the West will have to pour trillions into starting yesterday. And I, my main takeaway from that was I don't see how this possibly happens without the help of the central bank. Um, and and I'll, I'll pause in a moment just because I know I said a lot here, but um, I feel like if 2020 taught us anything, it's that if the government needs to borrow massive amounts of money in the trillions, they can't just go and raise it naturally from natural buyers of treasuries. The Fed has to step in. Um, so that was kind of the conclusion I came to was that if, if these things are going to happen to any extent, I think the central bank has to get involved. Um, but I will uh, pause there and see what others think about that. 
Yeah, that is uh, that, that's a great topic, and I loved that last uh, piece. I shared that with a number of people. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, stuff's always good, but I thought that was a particularly good one. And um, I mean, I'm definitely just, I mean, I think just as a starting point, I'm definitely broadly aligned. I mean, I think he has the right view there. I think, uh, you know, he's, I think people have been talking about this. I mean, obviously, like, kind of peak globalization is a thing. And, you know, I'm not, or I, I mean, I think that's discussed. And I'm not saying that means that, like, every country 100% retreats from the world. But I think the direction of that has inverted. And I think people post-COVID, post, um, um, post uh, the Ukraine disruption, the war, uh, countries are much more concerned about where their supply chains are, where their materials come from, what control they have over there. And, you know, in a world that is obviously in increased tensions, you know, having all of your critical materials coming from the other side of the planet leaves you vulnerable to disruption. So I think, I think it's a great analysis. I think that these, these initiatives are important. I think they're going to involve a huge amount of spending, like he says, uh, which is going to be inflationary, obviously. I also think they will leave the U.S. stronger, right? Like, I think they are good. They're, wor they're worthwhile initiatives in restoring, you know, our economic structure, structure, our industrial capacity, in ramping up commodities production. That's something I've, I've talked about several times in that, like, we inherited this kind of buffer from, from people that came before us of a very abundant, uh, prosperous United States. And we've kind of stopped investing in commodities and raw materials, and that's now biting us in the ass. So I think that's a, you know, terrifically important initiative. So, yeah, I think that's all key. And I agree with you. I mean, that financing, I mean, the central bank is going to be involved. I don't, I don't believe for a split second that they're going to be able to spend trillions. And this is like real fiscal spending, right? Like we've obviously been talking a lot about what really makes QE, but this is really just true fiscal money that needs to get paid out to uh, engage in real production and initiatives. Um, so something that comes to mind uh, in thinking about that, this, this kind of just popped into my head listening to you, but if they need to borrow trillions to do this, um, we've talked a lot about interest expense. And, you know, one of the things that I think is less appreciated is that uh, while interest rates are rising and yields are rising, um, because of the maturities of various government debt, that doesn't really start to impact the current debt for a little while, not that long, but a year or so is, I think, when it starts to really kind of impact a larger portion of the debt. Um, but for this, because this is new spending, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe all of that money is going to have to be issued at these higher treasury rates, uh, which makes that money even more expensive to the federal government than the trillions that we did in COVID. Uh, and if rates keep rising, uh, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but they will, they'll, they'll have to keep issuing at that higher rate. And so I feel like if we do think this is going to happen, that puts a, I don't know, a pressure on how high rates can get. What do you think about that? Yeah. I, I mean, this uh, is, go ahead, Sam, you, you go. Well, I know. I mean, like, if, if Zoltan's right and we're going into a war economy, 
um, if we just look at the past, you know, this is why people say yield curve control, right, Stephen? Like, if we can't afford it, what we've done in the past during World War II from 1941 to 1952 was cap interest rates. And as we ex- to finance the huge debt expansion to pay for the war, and, and, you know, this whole system has been built on these really fragile trade relationships that it amaz- amazingly worked the last many decades and resulted in all of this amazing uh, growth and, and globalization and trade. Um, but those things are breaking down now. And that's like what I took away from this piece. And that's inherently inflationary to, have to move to this multipolar world where the trade uh, relationships are breaking down. And so if we need to spend all this money like we're in a war just coming out of this war on a virus where we spent all this money on top of that you know what i see is is the likelihood of going to something like yield curve control increases so that's kind of what i would take away from that yeah totally agree and i was going to mention yield curve control as well i think that's why governments do that because they they find themselves between a rock and a hard place where they know they need to issue a ton of debt, but the natural interest rate would just be too high as they issue more debt, have to refinance existing debt. Interest expense just becomes too big. Um, this is what sometimes people refer to as government debt spiral. Um, so, yeah, certainly agree with that. Um, James Lavish did a good thread on this uh, a week or so ago, um, if you guys want to check that out. Um and then just one other comment I wanted to make. We did talk to Lynn Alden about this um, in a Swan private live session that we did a couple weeks ago. And we asked her the question, uh, you know, because she's done so much good research on what happened in the 1940s in the U.S. in the 70s and how it's similar and different to today. And she is one of the prominent people who have pointed out what the uh, government did in the 40s, which Sam was just describing. And we asked her the question of, do you think that's really possible for them to do yield curve control again, which is pretty much just a blatant uh, ignoring of the Fed's uh, dual mandate, right? Because if they, if they have a dual mandate for price stability and full employment, if you have uh, yield curve control where you are capping interest rates at a certain level and CPI is clearly several percentage points above that level, you really can't say that you are uh, engaging in behavior that's consistent with the price stability component of your mandate. Um, so in the 40s, they, they ignored that because it was this wartime uh, uh, environment and, and the central bank acted as such. Um, but as Lynn has pointed out, it just seems so much more difficult for that to happen today for a bunch of reasons. Um, one being, I think people understand economics much better today, the average person than they did in the forties. You know, how many people in the forties could have told you what yield curve control was, how many people could have told you who was running the fed at the time? You know, I would, I would guess not that many information didn't spread as quickly. There was not Twitter, there was not Cafe Bitcoin, there was not the entire Bitcoin movement. Um, So Lynn's take on this was that they're going to try to ultimately keep rates below CPI for extended periods of time. 
but that they're going to basically try everything else before engaging in outright yield curve control because that's kind of uh, letting the cat out of the bag. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to share um, that was Lynn's view on that topic. Yeah, and I think I think I think that's a, that's an interesting angle as well. Um, and so it kind of brings in this other variable that if inflation stays high, then they have more leeway on this. But obviously, <laughs> the flip side to that is inflation stays high. So they have kind of this buffer zone between the rates on the bottom, inflation on the top end, and this huge amount of debt they're going to issue um, if they want to do this. And you know, they're already kind of getting squeezed on interest expense compared to tax receipts and obviously all the other other spending. And that spending is going to have to increase. Entitlements are going to go up because of uh, inflation. So I think and then so I think this other variable comes in, that's the tax receipts. And so even if inflation goes up and rates go up and they're able to borrow at a higher rate because inflation is even higher, well, they still need to pay that with tax receipts. And for those to increase in this kind of not great scenario, either we're seeing asset inflation, um, which obviously seems somewhat likely in this sort of huge fiscal unloading, um, and that you know drives capital gains and drives tax receipts, or we're seeing this kind of wage price spiral where you know, wages just keep jumping up and we're in this inflationary thing. Um, but, you know, it's it seems like, at least at first glance, that one of those things needs to be happening at least just for um, tax receipts to keep up enough to, to make these payments. Uh, because even, even kind of at like current roughly 3% rates, uh, it's, it's meaningful on the amount of, on, on trillions. Yeah, absolutely. And like you could think about, you know, it's the interest that also if we have more economic growth, you know, that could increase tax receipts too. Um, and in World War II, we built all this great you know, factories and built all these procedures and processes. And they say war is the mother of invention. And we were able to boost productivity and boost economic growth coming out of World War II to kind of get us out of that situation. So that's a kind of an optimistic view here is if we do make all these investments, it could lead to a boost in productivity, uh, which could help us get out of this to boost tax revenues to afford this stuff. But I think we're actually, we're already doing the financial repression. We might not be doing explicit yield curve control, but we are doing exactly that playbook from back in the 40s. And the ECB is basically doing explicit yield curve control for certain countries. And so this is happening. Um, but like you said, it risks inflation. And so if inflation compounds and things continue to get expensive for everybody, it's a painful tax on everybody, especially the poorest. And the risk is that if this continues, it can lead to civil unrest. It can lead to rise in populism. And so you can't just keep this going without having some kind of actual productive investment going on that boosts economic growth and allows people to start to feel uh, wealthier, feel a share of these productivity gains from that investment. So, you know, it's kind of like we're doing the financial oppression already, but we have to do something to accompany it. It can't just be financial oppression. It wasn't enough back then. 
and it won't be enough now. So, and that's a great point, Sam. So I think um, uh, part of what you said, um, maybe we see productivity growth. So I think we've kind of laid out the case for the problems with this, the challenges, the the spending, the debt, the inflation, the interest expense. But the the other side, to kind of talk about maybe some of the benefits, um, you know, does this result in a productivity increase? And I am actually more, like if we did do this, just as Zoltan laid out, right? Like obviously there's a completely different debate of will we do it, what will that look like? But let's just assume we do. And if we did do this, I'm actually more optimistic about this spending than any other spending that we've seen. All the other use, all the QE, all the recapitalizations, all of this um, stimulus checks, these various things, right? Um, those, those just to me had very little chance to really result in uh, like a fundamental increase in economic productivity, in, in growth, in real infrastructure in real productive capacity that we need. And I think the, 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 the silver lining to this is what the U.S. needs. Um, and it obviously, this is a shift, right? This is a shift in the global order. It will change things. It's not going to be as cheap as buying everything from China. But we will, I, I believe personally, that doing this sort of kind of reshoring Re, re-industrializing, focusing on commodities, focusing on production. I think that will finally lead like median wages to grow in real terms. I think we'll finally have meaningful jobs that can provide, you know, the average person that doesn't work in tech or finance or healthcare um, with, a, with, a, with a better better income and a better quality of life. And maybe things are a little more expensive, but the, but the country as a whole I think does stand the chance of seeing real tangible economic benefits from this, as well as kind of a cultural shift. There's obviously a huge cultural shift that happens here, right? Where we, we need to, there needs to be a positive regard towards production and self-sufficiency. That's kind of the underlying ideology of this movement. And people need to shift from their current like nihilism and their current like capitalism is like the root of all evil to something where we acknowledge and like, you know, globalization and like focusing on all the countries outside is, is, pri- is uh, priority. There needs to be a shift on some level to like, there's virtue in us improving the states, improving uh, the situation within America. And so I think there's a cultural shift there that would be necessary that I'm obviously, you know, optimistic on. I think we do need to, you know, we do need to, to value these things. And, you know, in looking at that, uh, I think that there could be, it's going to be a transition period. It's going to be, there's going to be inflation. There's going to be cost to this. But, you know, I am hopeful that what we actually see out of this is the spending results in the production of capital. And I think that's the critique with so much of the money that has been lent, spent, and used for stimulus is it did not result in the creation of capital. And that is what has made it kind of toxic and useless. And we kind of come back to the basic insight and the basic impulse for why money is lent in the first place. And it's lent because you're trying to create a productive return. And at least with these initiatives, I can have some measure of optimism that there is a real chance we see a productive return from this. 
Yeah, Stephen, I think you hit on stuff um, towards the end there, which I think is really important to focus on, kind of talking about the nature of the spending that someone like Zoltan Pozar is talking about is more akin to what the U.S. spent uh, in the 1940s. Like just, you know, take the, the GI Bill, for example. You're spending a good amount of money. Um, um, you know, I think Lynn Alden gave this breakdown once, but she said, you know, we primarily spent on things towards industrial manufacturing facilities, sourcing commodities, hiring soldiers, and then sending the soldiers who returned home to technical school or universities, get them educated, ready for the workforce, for the U.S. to be a productive economy. Um, you know, probably not going to be a shock to anyone, but most of the stimulus that occurred during 2020 and 2021 was not of the same type. Uh, you know, it went to keeping consumers and businesses solvent despite uh, the reduction in productivity that came with the pandemic and, and the lockdowns. So you have all this new money creation through government spending, but there's not more commodity production. There's not more manufacturing going on. There's not a more skilled or educated workforce to show for it. Um, so I do think this spending that Zoltan talks about would be uh, would have a much better return associated with it. Um, and, and for the record, I'm someone who generally is going to be skeptical of all government spending. Um, that's just kind of my my nature, my my biases, so to speak. I, it, it generally takes a lot to convince me that any government spending is going to be worthwhile and not just inefficient and wasteful. Um, but if I were to pick a type of government spending, it would be the type that Zoltan is talking about. Of course, the details could be debated, of course, but, um, but it would be that kind of spending. But that all sounds nice. I guess what I want to bring up is I just see it having such a hard time of happening Unless inflation goes away in the very near term, you know, how, how do we see our politicians, at least in the U.S., with, with the very partisan politics, both sides not wanting to agree on anything, compromise on anything, plus inflation being the highest it's been in 40 years, man, I just have such a hard time seeing them come to the conclusion that we're going to spend an additional 5 to $10 trillion over the next 10 years or whatever it is that it just seems so unlikely to me. And then again, it comes back to this idea that we would have to basically forget about this whole price stability thing for the fed and that um, we shouldn't be borrowing and spending trillions of dollars when it, when CPI is, you know, at least above 5%, maybe above 10%. So I just, you know, even if it makes sense, even if it's defensible, <laughs> I just have a hard time seeing that there's any realistic probability of, of that happening. Well, I think that's because we are so used to being in this, the frivolous concerns of politicians in a decadent empire. That is, that is what we are used to. That is where we are. We, we have existed in the state of like relative abundance of decadence, and our politicians are generally frivolous. Um, but what I think, why, why, why I'm at least I'm op, I'm an optimist here, is I think <laughs> necessity, right? Necessity and contact with reality. I think our what has damned the current state of American politics is that we are abundant enough that they can do make wrong decisions, and it hasn't had immediate short term 
painful consequences. Obviously, I'm not say, saying it's had zero, but we've had we've had a, a bit of an economic, a bit of a commodities buffer. We have had cheap labor coming online in China. We've had this huge, you know, just a productive world that these politicians inherited. And I, I think I really, and I may be wrong here, I may be totally wrong, but I think that as we encounter necessity, as we encounter need, as we're forced to like headbutt reality, oh God, I think that I, I, I really like to believe that that does change priorities. And maybe that means it's different politicians, right? Maybe, maybe that means there's kind of a, a big voting out. But I, if there's anything that I, I, I think is fundamental about humanity is that we respond to necessity. Yeah, I like the optimism and I think that certainly is possible. Um, it is just hard to imagine that happening with the major politicians we know today, whether they be, um, you know, true, uh, politicians or, or central bankers. Um, but like you said, maybe it takes new politicians on the scene for something like that to happen. Um, this kind of, uh, pivot and not like a fed pivot, um, to easier policy, but more like a, a pivot more from the fiscal side, like, Hey, we're just going to do something pretty drastically different we're going to have a different approach to this than we have for the last, you know, I don't know, 50 to 70 years, basically. And, um, and yeah, this gets me to the idea of a regime change, which I know some people, you know, use as a buzzword. But um, when I think about the past 30 odd years in financial markets, um, and this, this kind of, you know, elaborates on some of the things that Stephen was talking about in an, an era of, uh, of, of decadence, I, I believe you said, Stephen. But I think that was kind of all um, allowed to happen by uh, things like low inflation, generally falling interest rates, increased globalization, cheap stuff from China, cheap natural gas from Russia, friendly relations between the West and the East, supply chains built for efficiency rather than resilience, no major conflicts with the world's most powerful militaries, and U.S. dollars and treasuries serving as the primary global reserve asset. Um, and all of that led to mostly positive returns in stocks and bonds, by the way, with, with a few exceptions um, along the way. Um, but I, I'd say I think it's just objectively true that several, if not all of those trends are showing signs of, of reversing. Um, and, and maybe that's why the regime change is needed. Uh, you know, like you said, and I said, Stephen, I, it's hard to imagine any of the politicians we have today being the ones to usher that in. But, but um, these things are kind of unpredictable by by their nature. So maybe it takes uh, a couple more years and some new faces to bring about those changes. Yeah, and I, I understand. Obviously, I understand the hesitancy and the skepticism. And and yeah, I mean that the, any it's what any rational person would think looking at the behavior of the last 20 years, right? So it, it is kind of, uh, it is that even what I'm, what I'm saying is predicated on, uh, you know, some, some real change happening, which we haven't seen much of, but I, uh, I, I, I still am, I, I, I am inclined to believe in the power of necessity, but you know, those are great, great points, right. On the, the financial system. And I, I kind of wanted to expand on what you just said there, John. Um, because I think it doesn't get talked about enough. It doesn't get talked about enough how the, the primary orientation, I feel like, and um, 
Ellen Farrington does just a phenomenal job with this in, in Bitcoin is Venice, which I am embarrassingly only now getting to read. But the, the primary orientation, uh, you know, I think of the financial system in the last 20 years or, or certainly since 2008, let's say since 2008 particularly, has been essentially sacrificing capital. So destroying the long-term productive resources of society to generate short-term velocity of money, essentially, which is what GDP really is. We're talking about revenue. We're not talking about profit. We're talking about the rate and pace at which money changes hands. We're not talking about did we have a productive return with the money. Um, and so it's like this notion, he does a metaphor of it's a farmer eating their seeds, I mean, yeah, you can eat the seeds and, you know, maybe you'll survive till next month, but you are fundamentally impairing the long-term growth of capital. Um, it's so he does capital a, destruction versus capital formation over time. Precisely, precisely. That's exactly what it is. And, and that, is, that is the orientation we've had, right? We've had this, this whole system has in many ways, at least, been geared towards capital destruction to produce quarterly revenue. And I, I had a tweet the other day that we actually live in an anti-capitalist society. It's not, that, it's not that it's socialist, it's not that it's communist, but it's not that it's capitalist either, if, at least in part. If you look at this impulse, it is the inversion of capitalism. It is the destruction of capital. Uh, whereas if we're going to define capitalism in any sort of functional way, it's a system that promotes the formation of capital. And our system is not promoting the formation of capital, or at least it hasn't, and in recently. And um, I think what it's since 1971 and maybe earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I think what excites me about this, and of course, you know, this could totally be co-opted. It could not happen. The money could be spent inefficiently. It could just, it could be, you know, siphoned off by cronies. There's a million things that could go wrong, but if it does happen and there is necessity, I think what excites me about it is at least this notion that we might have some sort of relationship to the formation of capital again. All right. Great stuff. So um, we're going to open this up. If uh, you are in the audience and you would like to come up and uh, ask these gentlemen some questions, you're welcome to do that. Uh, and if you are in the audience and you want to ask by text because you don't want to come up on the stage, that's okay. You can go to t.me forward slash Cafe Bitcoin Club. We have a Telegram group, t.me forward slash Cafe Bitcoin Club. You can ask your question in there as well. So we're going to be opening up this stage a little bit. While we're waiting for some folks to come up, Lauren, I'm throwing you an invite. Um, Worth, if you're free, I'm throwing you an invite. Uh, a couple of quick announcement things while we're waiting for this uh, for these folks to get up here. Again, you are listening to Cafe Bitcoin. Um, we do this every day on uh, on Twitter Spaces. You can also catch us on a, on a podcast. Um, and yeah, we talk about Bitcoin. So on Fridays we do Swan Private Macro, and that's what we're doing today. So uh, welcome up, Lauren. Good morning. Good morning. What's up, guys? I wanted to get the thoughts of uh, the people here in regards to uh, Michael Burry's hedge funds selling everything and now 
only holding geo stock and geo being a company that mostly invests in uh, private prisons and uh, mental institutions. And for those that don't know, Michael Burry's the guy who kind of foresaw the 2008 housing crisis and he became a billionaire because of it. So I just kind of found all of that pretty interesting. I wanted to see your thoughts on it. Yeah. Can yeah. I can I clarify the question sure. <clears throat> just to make sure I heard it correctly? Are you did you say that Michael Burry has basically sold everything except for this one particular company that apparently manages private prisons and mental institutions? Correct. Yeah. So I haven't obviously I haven't followed this very closely, so I'll, I'll preface it with that. But I do have a, I think a broad comment on Burry. Um, there is a weird set of incentives where people who get famous. So we, we make celebrities out of people who predict calamities, right? We don't make celebrities out of people who, you know, buy Apple at $1 and they were right. You know, Michael Saylor did that, but he's not known for that. He's known for the Bitcoin thing. There's, there's a ton of people out there that were right in an optimistic direction. They purchased something, they invested in something, they saw it before everybody else, and they made a ton of money doing it. But we don't celebrate those people for the most part, for the most part. But we love to celebrate people who predict calamities ahead of everybody else. The problem, I mean, I mean, and he was right. He obviously saw this thing. He was, you know, he, he made a very, a very insightful and contrarian call. The problem is this certain sort of attention it incentivizes people. So like, let's say he goes on CNN, he goes on CNBC, goes on the media. They don't want to hear what he's, what he's optimistic on. They don't want to hear what he's long. They want to hear, Michael, what's the next crisis? What's the next crisis? And what can happen to people is with these expectations, they're incentivized to always be looking for crises. The problem is when you're looking for them, you, you tend to see them. You tend, to, you tend to find them. You tend to see them where they're not there. And the thing I can say about Burry is he has had a long history of bad predictions after that. So I don't, you know, I don't know what his thesis is. I can't specifically refute or counter that. I don't have the information. But I will say that I do, I do take what he says with a grain of salt um, because he has, not been a, he has not been an oracle, right? He's had a Pretty pretty long history of failed predictions after after the the one he's famous for. And I'll I'll just say quickly, you know, he does call himself Cassandra on Twitter. I'm pretty sure he still does do that. So and that's the person I think is Greek mythology who had a lot of predictions that turned out true, but nobody listened to them. So I feel like that kind of has become his his shtick, and he's he's basically sticking to that over time. The other thing is. Um, People are making a really big deal on that small position he's taken, but it's it's like one percent of the assets he manages. So it's extremely small position in that stock. I think what that stock is got people all fired up. Like he's some kind of like taking a huge position in, in prisons and mental health and everyone's gonna go crazy. But there could just be reasons why he likes that stock from like a business perspective or analyst you know, it's just undervalued or something, but people really take that out of context and put all these narratives on top of it. But it's a very, very small position. I think the bigger news is that he went all basically to cash and he thinks that, you know, the stock market's going to drop. But like Steven said, what John said, um, you know, everyone has predictions. Sometimes they work out, sometimes they don't. 
Michael Berry was right uh, in a significant way in the past. So everyone kind of listens to what he says, but you know, Michael Berry can be wrong too. It's, it's just kind of the way markets work. It reminds me of, we had a hilarious moment in the Swan Slack the other uh, day. So for those of you who don't know, um, our CRO, our chief revenue officer joined us from years at Bridgewater at the, at Ray Dalio's fund. Uh, very happy to have him, Guy Gomez. And somebody had posted a, uh, essentially a, a uh, a, a report from Dalio where they said, yeah, U.S. assets are going to fall 25%. And <laughs> Guy commented and he said, yeah, I mean, Bridgewater has predicted, successfully predicted eight out of the last three recessions. <laughs> you know, kind of saying they, they've, they've, they've called it eight times, but it's only happened three. So five of those times it didn't materialize. And, you know, this is the challenging nature of predictions, especially predictions to the downside. All right. Um, any other topics that you want to hit, Lauren? Nope, that was it. I'm in a uh, women's uh, women in Bitcoin chat, and uh, that was one of the ones that they wanted to pose up to the the panel. It's been a, a hot topic in our in our group chat. So thanks, guys. I appreciate your response. Absolutely, our pleasure. Sam, did you have something? No, it's the same. Thanks for the question. So um, I just shared to the nest. I don't know how long it takes. Sometimes it can take 20, 30 seconds to be visible to others. I just shared in the nest a uh, tweet from Dylan LeClaire yesterday where he shows just a dollar chart. And uh, he shows the spikes throughout the last, I think it's about 20 years or so, maybe longer. Um, and I think it's just like quite clear that we are in the midst of another... Uh, sort of a assortment of crises. I don't think that um, this is a situation that is benign in any way. I don't think this is a tough call to look at what's going on right now and try to wonder um, if we're, you know, going up, going down, or good, bad, what's, what's rolling out here. I think there's just a variety of factors that are quite clearly all pointing in the same direction. I think we're already in a recession, and every time anybody questions whether we're in one now or whether we're going to go into one, I just scratch my head and I wonder what people are looking at. So curious if you could just take a look at that Dixie chart and maybe make a comment about kind of what looks like when you zoom out and you look at all these factors, both the, the dollar strengthening in such an extraordinary way right now against other currencies, as well as the uh, record levels of debt, all the stuff you mentioned before. The financial repression that's going on is not an accident. It's It's been the plan. There's been uh, really clear papers written uh, in the last decade going back to like the early 2010s where financial repression is called out by name and pointed at as a strategy of how they're moving forward. Uh, and in this environment, financial repression, for anyone who doesn't know, just means that the inflation must stay significantly above the interest rates. This is one of the reasons that the interest rates needed to be pushed down so low. But as you know, the interest rates come back up, inflation has got to be there. Everything implodes without commensurate inflation to counterbalance the, uh, the rise in the interest rates just because of the extraordinary amount of debt. So everything that I see from that point of view is pointing to 
not only recession, but likely some kind of global depression. And we see this rolling out in, uh, in Europe, all kinds of problems there, all over the world. We've had several small economies, uh, currencies collapse, and a lot of stuff happen in just a very short amount of time in the last six, nine months. So I, I, I'm having real trouble just looking at this like, well, we just need some politicians to change in the next couple of years. I mean, two years from now, we could be in, you know, a mess of just absolutely historical proportions. I think what's happening right now is 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 all pointing in that direction. And I'm just curious if you can make a comment to that. Yeah, so I think a few thoughts that jump out. I mean, um, yeah, obviously, so kind of on the, on the flip side, so obviously I just spoke about how people are often... Uh, trigger happy with calls for calamity. However, the situation isn't good right now, right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not justifying that. Oh yeah. Everything's rosy, like new all time high for the S and P in five years, you know, in any year. Um, not really how I see it. Um, so the dollar is challenging. Um, a dollar strengthening, and this is kind of, uh, you know, there's been this kind of theory thrown around the dollar milkshake theory, and there's, I think, for, for critics of the dollar, for people that are always, uh, there's this interesting dynamic where in, in, in a world where there are kind of issues, especially fiat, you know, monetary issues, the dollar is going to strengthen rapidly and consistently against all of the other fiat currencies. It is by far and large the best of the fiat currencies. It, it has that. Uh, a lot of structural elements that give it a, a strong advantage. And so we're seeing that. We're seeing the dollar strengthen tremendously. Now, now, to caveat that, part of that is the euro getting absolutely imploded by a tangible, I mean, I mean, and, and I mean, this is, I, I see the Europe situation as one of the most precarious things in the world right now. It's really, it's bad. Um, but that has obviously put a ton of pressure on the euro. And the yen as well, which has been, you know, Japan is also in a critical situation. They're in yield curve control. So that has added some juice to it. It's not the only thing going on. Those are, it's not solely attributable to those, but it definitely has added a lot of fuel to that fire. Um, when, when the dollar goes high like that, it, uh, it causes a lot of problems for countries around the world. Um, really significant problems. But eventually, you know, it kind of swings back like a wrecking ball. And it causes problems for the U.S. Um, if the dollar continues to strengthen like this, which I'm not really making a call on one way or the other, um, it's 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 a huge it's a huge challenge. Um, but at the same time, you have this interesting dynamic where the dollar has strengthened enormously against fiat currencies, but it has weakened versus goods in many ways. Um, against food, against gas, against these various things. So there's these two sides to look at it, which is how strong is the dollar versus other fiat currencies, which has financial and monetary implications for the solvency of a monetary system, profound ones. But then there's this other scenario of, and you, you've kind of, you kind of touched on that in your question, like inflation is high. It's actually losing value versus many goods and services that people need in a real way, not just as like a component of a monetary system. Yeah. I, I, sorry to jump in. I, I'm looking at the clock is the only reason I wanted to stop you there. Cause I know that Alex is looking at the clock too, and, and he's got to wrap up soon here, but, um, yeah, no, I, I'm totally clear on all that stuff. Uh, 
the, the Dixie is just relative measure of the dollar against other currencies. The inflation that we feel as consumers in the economy is raging. Uh, so the, the, the purchasing power of the dollar is plummeting. It's a very confusing situation for a lot of people. But for me, I like to isolate this sort of big picture uh, components of what's happening. And the fact that the debt has just not stopped increasing, the fact that the Fed keeps piling assets onto their balance sheet, they have not really tightened in that regard. Now interest rates are flying upward. This is a terrible concoction of ingredients. This is a situation where um, people in the economy in America are being absolutely squeezed if they have any kind of variable rate debt. And all of the trading partners globally that have to trade with the dollar as the global reserve currency are getting slammed on top of their sky-high energy prices and everything else that's going on. We have a, a, a storm rolling out here. Like To me, it's, it's not like a debate whether this is another one of these major milestone situations like on that chart. And you look at every time we get that kind of action with the dollar, there's some kind of recession or crisis happening. And I feel like right now that the dollar action is just one of several really high profile landmark kind of metrics that show that we're in uncharted territory. This is potentially a crisis of unforeseen uh, scale for anyone who's alive today. They just haven't seen something like this in their lifetime. And so from that point of view, I, I just scratch my head at, at a very measured outlook on what's happening. And, and this is a situation where people need to fortify. They need to protect themselves. And to me, that's one of the best contexts to understand what Bitcoin is for, because Bitcoin is for staying solvent in what may be an epic credit freeze, an epic debt crisis, an epic series of currency collapses. There's all kinds of things that are potential here. And the only way that you can really protect yourself is to have solvency. And Bitcoin is one of these things as an anti-debt unit that is solvency. So I, I just, to me, I, I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble with, a, with too measured of a, of a point of view. And I understand that comes across as gloom and doom and people are averse to that. But I think it's, it's important that people are like grounded and like looking at what's really going on here. And it's really outstanding and unforeseen. Yeah. I, I saw, okay, I, I get, I get kind of what you're saying and asking. So, I mean, I think, I think the answer to your question, like you posed it in what you just said, is that the, the road out of this is a debasement of the currency. There's a, the road out of this is a monetary expansion, the printing of currency and a drop in the value of the dollar, right? Like it is a, it is an inflation, which is like a profound thing that has huge ramifications that people need to hedge against, that Bitcoin lets you hedge against that. But, you know, that is that is the road, I think, that is taken out of this. It's the road that, you know, almost every government, you know, in the history of the world takes out of these these debt crises. And the, the other thing. So there's that there. You know, yes, it's it's really it's it's a really intractable situation. There's a huge balance of payments problem. There's a huge issue here with the amount of debt, the rising rates, the recession, which I agree there is a recession. Um, and it's, I don't, I don't see, I mean, the road out is crisis or debasement. Um, and I, I do believe they're going to choose debasement. Um, but on the other side, then there's this like kind of twin commodities issue. There's this real world issue that is not just like a, a balance of numbers on a bunch of complicated spreadsheets. Um, and that's the Europe issue and that's kind of other things. And, 
you know, I think the other action that needs to be taken is we need to really fortify and reindustrialize. So that's just a, that's, that's, I kind agree of with that. I just, I feel like that's a, a generational thing, you know, and that's what's something where all of these things that are playing out now, even if we switched, if we pivot right now and put all our efforts towards like reindustrializing and, and bringing real economy back, that, that takes a decade at least to really see time. the results of. All right. I don't I don't want to interrupt you guys, but I have to interrupt you guys because we're pretty much out of time. That's the end of the show. Um, we're going to go around and we're going to get a 30 second lightning round of, of kind of top level thoughts from Sam, Steven and John. And then we're going to move to wrap up. Sam, you got any um, any closing comments that you want to make? Uh, yeah, I just uh, sympathize with what TC was saying there. You know, I think it's a challenging time. And what Steven just said at the end where it just takes time if we're going to invest in infrastructure. Uh, but there is a third way out. Uh, it's not just crisis and devaluation. The third way out is increased productivity and economic growth. So there is a third way, and it might not seem realistic, but that's definitely an option that we could probably put our minds together and try to figure out. All yeah. right. Uh, Stephen, closing thoughts? Yeah. Definitely, definitely right, Sam. I mean, if we did have a big productivity or an energy revolution, that would, of course, really change the calculus there. And, you know, I don't know how to, <laughs> it's very difficult to place odds on that in any way. It's, you know, we haven't, we haven't, we haven't seen something like that for, for a while. And it seems like people aren't putting resources into that. But yeah, that is the third pathway. It's productivity boost, energy revolution. It's just like screaming, flaming crisis or it is uh, debasement and devaluation. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I think just to close, I, um, and this kind of ties in, I think there's something interesting that Peter Zihon has been putting out there. And I have, I, I, don't, I don't really blindly agree with everything he says, but he has an interesting point about um, people view the last century as kind of like the American century, a century of American dominance. And from a certain angle, okay, yeah, that's true. But he reframes it as, Actually, it's easier to better to characterize it as um, American sacrifice in that the deals and agreements that America made over the last hundred years were actually to the detriment of America. They were at the cost of our jobs. They were shipping our economy, our jobs overseas. They were running a global reserve currency for the benefit of the world that harmed us. And so part of this kind of reindustrialization, reshoring is this notion that America is going to choose to stop sacrificing its domestic economy for the world. Um, and where maybe in the beginning it did that to stabilize a newly founded global order. And maybe that was justifiable. Now it is sacrificing its economy to fund Chinese growth and to fund this kind of emerging multipolar balance of powers. And I think that is much less justifiable. And so, yes, I, I think, I think this reindustrializing, reshoring this kind of change in the, in the monetary dynamic, I, I think that is the theme of the next decade. And, you know, I agree with, uh, I agree with what you were saying and um, it takes time. It's not, it's not simple. It's not quick. All right. Yeah, I know we're up on time here and um, those are a lot of good thoughts from Sam and Steven. 
So I will end with something totally unrelated, but hopefully uh, people find it somewhat entertaining. Um, I recently uh, took a trip to Italy for the first time. I got to visit Rome. It was incredible. And I wanted to share two takeaways, um, totally random takeaways. But one was that uh, over in Europe, things are quite cheap. Uh, everyday items, food, whatever, compared to New York City where I live. Yes, that's one of the most expensive places in the country. Um, but things were cheap except gasoline. Uh, when we had to refill the tank, it was $8 a gallon to, to fill up the tank, which is pretty wild. And then secondly, um, a takeaway that um, you know, I, I couldn't help but notice was that New York Yankees hats are everywhere. Um, you walk around and people from all different types of countries are wearing New York Yankees hats. My New York Mets get no love, even though they have the same New York Mets logo. Um, they get absolutely no love. So if you're out there, you're thinking about buying a hat to represent New York, please make it a Mets hat instead of a Yankees hat. That's all I got. <laughs> all right, all right. Highly, highly important information right there. Okay, thanks so much, guys. This has been a great show. Um, really appreciate you guys doing this. You've been listening to Cafe Bitcoin, a great place to learn about Bitcoin, the place for your morning news, preferred hangout for some some of the smartest minds in Bitcoin to chill, talk about what's going on. When I say that, I don't mean me. I mean lots of people much smarter than, than myself that I get to learn from all the time. This is also a podcast up on Fountain, Spotify, Apple. Um, you can throw me or Swan Bitcoin a follow to be notified of when those drop. Thanks to Swan Bitcoin, the sponsors of the show. My crew, Aunt Shane, Sats for Life, producer Jacob. I'm your host, Alex Danzig. I work with Swan. You can shoot me a DM if you want to know more. Uh, thanks again to the speakers. Appreciate you spending your personal time to do this. And um, to everybody out in the audience, thanks for hanging out. Thanks for your loyalty. I mean, we've had a couple of really big spaces at the exact same time as us earlier this week. And and um, our numbers were, were really good. Like lots of people still chilling and wanting to hang out. So... That's great. Appreciate all you guys. So everybody go out there and have a great day today. Uh, love all you guys. Crush it.